Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. So if you have your Bible here with you, I recommend that you do so. Please turn to the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy. Most of you know we've got a four-week series on what's called the pastoral epistles. That's a phrase that came in use in 1703, but in some respects is slightly unhelpful because there's not a great deal of pastoral advice in these epistles. I don't know who coined the phrase, but in essence what we're dealing with are some letters from the Apostle Paul to two leaders that he had mentored for some years, and he's imparting instruction with a sense of his end, his death, being near. Now let me just set the big picture before we get into the the text itself. So the Apostle Paul a guy who wrote much of the New Testament, a very zealous and committed Christian. If we're to try and reconstruct history as accurately as we can, he probably became a believer around the late 20s in the first century. And he was to die in the mid-60s. So his life in Christ spanned around about 35 years, And in terms of meaningful ministry time, probably somewhere between 25 to 30 years, he was out on the road preaching and teaching and doing what God had called him to do. And so he'd been across much of the known world and he'd, as we understand it, stood trial in Rome. He'd been released from Rome. And this is where the trouble starts with trying to time the epistles, these letters, begins. Because the book of Acts ends with Paul on trial in Rome. But these epistles probably were written a little while after Paul had been on trial in Rome. We we think that he was released. So another part that we can reconstruct about his life is that he probably went on a fourth missionary journey. We've got three missionary journeys in the pages of Acts, but he probably went on a fourth one after he went out of, out, of, out of trial in Rome. And there's some interesting ideas as to where he got. There are some fairly reliable sources that tell us that he went to Spain. Paul talks in Romans how he wanted to go to Spain. we probably end up there. Some people actually say that he got to the UK at some point. Now, there isn't a great deal of evidence to suggest that's in any way a credible story, but it's just, sometimes it's nice just to float those ideas out there. I like the idea of the Apostle Paul coming to the UK. Now, if any of you want to know how that all happened in more detail, please speak to me afterwards, because the time is short enough for me to, to kind of move on past that. So, there's an idea, there's a thought, there's a story that Paul eventually ended up in the UK for a time. But then on his journey, on this fourth missionary journey, he's going to places that aren't mentioned in the book of Acts. And there's a number of other details that are important in the book of Acts, which which we only get for reconstructing history outside of the book of Acts. But the Apostle Paul, and some of you have some notes, I'm not going to go too deeply into the maps that I've given you. 
But he sets off from Rome and he goes around the Mediterranean area. And it's around this kind of time that he gives instructions to Timothy and to Titus because Paul believed that although he got let off from his first trial in Rome, he wouldn't have the same outcome for his second trial. And so Paul is preoccupied with the idea of making sure that the churches that he has planted and overseen for many years are left in good standing and in a good state before he goes to heaven to be with Jesus. So he writes to Timothy and the book of Timothy really is a, a very much a, a note to Timothy as a man with some encouragement from Paul to Timothy to to get him to make sure he holds on to his faith and to make sure that he doesn't forget that there have been prophecies spoken over his life and he needs to hold on to those words that God has given him. And there's that saying, isn't there, we shouldn't doubt in the dark what God has said in the light. And Timothy had, had to face some of the battles with the churches that Paul had faced. So we need to hold on to the word of God. But Titus is slightly different in that Titus doesn't get the same kind of encouragements that Timothy was given. If I was to give you my kind of bi um, biography of, of who they were as a type of person, sort of their character traits, I kind of imagine Titus as being quite a tough cookie. He was from Crete and he was a Gentile. But Paul, when he writes to Titus, he doesn't give him any kind of encouragement. He just instructs him to do stuff. Yeah. Go and do this. Good. Go and say this. Because I imagine that Titus probably didn't need a, a kind of a, a nice encouraging word, that he was pretty sort of self-leading and would get on and just do what Paul had said him to do, for him to do. But Timothy, he seems more timid. He seems more shy. He seems more reluctant. And in fact, if you get it, when we get into 2 Timothy, and we'll look at that a little bit more next week and the week after, we're focusing on the beginning of 1 Timothy today. But there is this... this, this the sense in which Paul, in some ways, seems to fear that Timothy might kind of give up on the task that he's been given to do. And he doesn't want him to do that. And in some ways, I can identify with both Timothy and Titus. There have been times in my ministry life and walk with a Christian, I feel very strong, very reassured very capable, very competent. I can just get on and do what the Word of God has told me to do or my ministry um, sort of requires of me to do. But there have been times, there have been Timothy times in my life where I feel like, you know what, I need to remind myself of what God has called me to do because I don't feel like doing it all of the time. I feel like maybe I ought to shy away for a period of time and, and, and just duck out of the limelight just while I kind of work on my mental health or something. So there are parts of my life I can identify with Timothy and there are parts of my life that I can identify with Titus. And I imagine that's probably the same for many of you. But as we look through Timothy now, we're going to look at something about the man uh, Timothy himself, which will come out through the text. But we're going to look at Paul's teaching to Timothy with a particular refre reflection on how Paul saw himself, at least in this first chapter. So let me just read through the chapter itself and then we're going to bring out some points which I trust we will be able to apply to our lives. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Saviour 
and of Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love, and that comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. But there are some that have departed from these and they've turned aside to fruitless discussions. They want to be teachers of the law, though they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But they know that the law is good, provide, but we know that the law is good provided that one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and the irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whoever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an arrogant man, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and, and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So Timothy, this, we would say a young man, we're not exactly sure of his age, but he is kind of referred to as a son here. So we get the idea in our mind that Paul sees himself as, as being a few years ahead of Timothy in many respects. Timothy, this young man, his faith has been shaped by his mum and from his grandmother. That's going to come out in 2 Timothy. And that's interesting, actually, that his faith was shaped by two women. And next week, we're going to look at how Paul might have said to Timothy, he forbids women to teach or to have authority over a man. But before you get ready to stone me, I'm happy for women to lead in church. But we need to deal with that because that's in the text. So Timothy, this young man, he has his faith shaped by his mom and his grandma. And that has imparted something into him and Paul is encouraging him to continue to fight the good fight because as I said at the beginning, there is something within Timothy, maybe a reluctance, maybe a shyness, maybe a timidity, which meant that he was maybe naturally inclined to pull away from confrontation. 
But Paul needed him to be prepared to confront some things because in the context of the church that Timothy was sent to, we believe the church in Ephesus, there had been things stirring in that church which were leading people down a path of sort of shipwrecking their faith. And we need to take note that not everything that we hear in the kind of broader teaching of Christianity in the church is always going to be healthy for us. Paul recognised that it was possible for things to be taught in church by people with responsibility and authority that could, in, in fact, shipwreck someone's faith, not keep them floating and moving towards their destination. So Timothy, part of his role was to make sure that he stayed in Ephesus and he challenged and he addressed false teaching. And one of the ways Paul here gives to Timothy for him to identify and measure false teaching is in the first few verses where he says, verse 5 in chapter 1, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and from a sincere faith. The goal of instruction is love. So the first thing Paul was saying to Timothy is that make sure what you teach and what you critique in, in, in the teaching of other people seems to result in more love in the life of, lives of believers. He was saying that if you want to test whether this teaching is from God that you hear people talking about, does it result in more love in those people's lives? So in our own lives, when we are listening to teaching, when we are taking on board teaching or doing a study, we have to we have to kind of test ourselves. Is this producing more of the love of Jesus in me or not? Do I love my brother and sister in Christ more because of this teaching? Is this producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? Because there are many things that we can hear in, in Christianity and in the wider church which might be interesting, they might kind of tickle our intellect a little bit, but they have no real substance to bring about a more loving Christian life. So Paul was saying, don't get yourself caught up in loads of kind of weird and wacky teaching. And I've been through Bible college and there is a lot of weird and wacky teaching out there, I can assure you. But Alan's disagreeing with me there. He's like, no, no, never heard it. There is a lot of weird and wacky, but you've got to look at the fruit of the teaching. What does it produce? What does it produce in you? Do you love Jesus more as a result of that teaching? Do you love your brothers and sisters more as a result of that teaching? So rather than simply being about learning information, Paul is saying to Timothy, instruction and information has a goal in mind. It has an end in mind, and that end is to produce love in the believer in Jesus. If you don't see love, then you need to kind of question the teaching. So that's something that we can apply to our own lives. When we're looking for, look for teaching that improves the love of Jesus in you. Look for teaching that improves the love of Jesus for one another. If you can begin to do that, then you will produce a, a greater harvest in your own personal life. One of the ways in my notes I've kind of given you an illustration is in the disciplining of children. Now, I was raised in a time and generation when corporal punishment from parents was kind of allowed. I think probably twice I received the slipper. Maybe a newspaper in there as well on one or two occasions. Now, I don't think I was especially naughty as a child, but, 
you know, probably looking back, I can understand the frustration in my parents. But when the goal of discipline becomes simply disciplining because you're angry, you miss the point of discipline. Whether your model of discipline is the naughty step or the slipper, the goal of any discipline is to produce the fruit of a corrected life, a life that is more tolerant and patient. With my kids, they fight at home so much. I cannot believe that they are pastor's kids sometimes. I'm sure there should be some sort of special grace on our home that stops them fighting with one another. And there are many times I want to discipline them because I'm angry with them. But my discipline isn't about me kind of venting my frustration. Any discipline a parent use, uses, is the goal is to produce a more well-adjusted, patient, kind child. And Paul was saying some people use the word of God, the teaching about the law, to kind of just punish people, to hit people over the head with truth. And Paul was saying, actually, the goal, even of the Mosaic law, even the law of Moses, even though at times it seems quite harsh, actually, the goal of that was to produce a fruit of kindness and love and peace and patience in people. And that should be the same thing for us. Now, the second point I would kind of draw from this text is that Paul seems to have a very humble view of himself. Now, right at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, he talks about himself as an apostle. Now, I better clarify what that means, because I don't assume that everybody in the church understand what, understands what an apostle is. An apostle wasn't a position. An apostle was a role in the local church. Apostle simply means somebody who is sent. And for the duration of the time they are sent, that person is someone who is sent, and therefore they are an apostle. So in their being sent and in their going as they are sent, they are apostolizing. They are going out and they are being sent and they are carrying a message. So Paul recognized that he had, he had a ministry to go out and to, to be sent to different places. And the churches that Titus and Timothy are being given to oversee and to instruct, they were the fruit of Paul's having been sent. But then what Paul would do is that he would make sure that when he had left, he had people in those churches that were able to oversee the kind of day-to-day -day running of those churches, the teaching, the taking care of the sick, making sure people were fed who were widows and so forth. And so you have apostles and you have people that were called overseers or elders. Now, if you read those two words in the Bible, they are the same thing. Overseers and elders are the same role. Different words in Greek, but they are the same role. And then alongside those, they had people who were called diakonos. They were servants or what we would call deacons. So the way that the leadership worked in that first church period were apostles went and carried a message to a place. They would establish a church. They would begin to, begin to instruct people about, about Jesus and make sure that they had an accurate understanding of who he was and how to live a life that honoured him. And then from within that group of people, they would establish people who were overseers, elders, or overseers, who would make sure that the church was running, the church was running effectively. And they would also have people who were called deacons, diaconos, who were servants, 
who were given the charge and responsibility to do certain jobs within the local church to make sure that the, 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 the widows had enough food and that the people were being visited and taken care of. And so this is the kind of basic structure that happened in the local church. And today, we have lots of denominations that exist because of arguments over stuff to do with who's in charge, what do we call them, elders, deacons, overseers, all that kind of stuff. And bishop and things like that, they've become a kind of a, a term of authority. Bishop is just another name for an overseer. And in fact, in the early church you had many overseers to one church, not many churches to one overseer. And now you get bishops over churches, but in the first century when they established the churches, you had many bishops over one church. And there was a strength in the plurality of leadership. They had team leadership in the early church. And Paul he wasn't claiming a sense of superiority as an apostle, but it did come with a bit of prestige. It did come with some kudos and some influence, although when Paul talked about the reality of his job, he said, actually, it sets me up for a lot of persecution. But despite the role that he had of going out, of preaching about the gospel and so forth, he then talks about himself as somebody who was formerly um, a blasphemer, who was a persecutor and an arrogant man. He didn't forget that he was a person who had made mistakes in his life. Despite the role and the position that God had given him, he stayed humble because he remembered that there were many times in his life when he had made some very big mistakes. And in fact, he's going to go on later in the chapter to, to correct people who would talk things that were false, saying things that were blasphemous, but he had authority to say those things, not because he was an apostle, but because he was once a blasphemer and a false teacher himself. And so he kind of recognised in humility that he wasn't all that. And I think all of us as Christians, particularly those of us who've grown up in church and maybe not had some of the kind of wild living and lifestyles that some other people might have done, that we need to remember that we aren't all that in ourselves, but we are more than enough in Christ Jesus. When we look to our own behaviour, our own roles and the things that we do in church as the measure of our value, as the measure of our identity, we start to get proud and arrogant because we look to position, we look to role, we look to see how many people are in my life group, how many people are in my church. I must be doing well. God must be very pleased because look at how many people I've talked to about him. Look what I get to do. Look at those extra text messages because I'm on a few of Lucas's other WhatsApp groups. I must be on five of Lucas's WhatsApp groups. So I must be doing super good for Jesus. Despite Paul's ministry prowess, he remained humble because he reminded himself of who he was. That in himself... He was nothing. He didn't deserve the grace and the mercy of God. But in Christ, he was more than enough and he was everything he would ever need to be. And so Paul is giving to Timothy this sense of kind of core identity. Timothy, there are going to be many people who are going to criticise you as you challenge that false teaching. There are going to be many people who come against you. There are going to be many people who try to discourage you. 
Don't worry about your self-esteem. Be worried about the fact that you need to hold on to Christ and the esteem that that gives you. Have that as your core strength and your core identity. So Paul, he had an incredible uh, um, privilege of preaching the gospel, but he he maintained that humility because he recognized that at the parts of his life, he had made some big, big mistakes. Now, before we come into the last point, I just want to focus in on something that is a bit more theologically deep here. Now, I wanted to, in my point, just, just bring one point to you that really made you scratch your head a little bit. Okay. Now, I'm just going to focus in on verse 17. It says here, Now to the king, the king, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only God. Now, if you were to turn over to 1 Timothy 6, 13. It says, in the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay, what is interesting about that? Here's something that is, that is interesting, particularly about Paul's theology. Now, for those of us in the room, I imagine most of us are fairly secure in the fact that Jesus is fully divine. Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully divine. And in this letter to Timothy, I believe Paul, too, believe that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Yet in this latter part in Timothy, he talks about God and he talks about Jesus. So why in the language of Paul does he separate God from Jesus in a way that it seems to intimate, seems to suggest that Jesus wasn't himself God? There are two things that I'm going to give to you as as a kind of an answer to that in a simple way. There's a big discussion around this, as you might expect. Now, the first thing is that it said in chapter 1, I read that to you, that it talked about now to the king, eternal, immortal. In chapter 6 as well, it talks about how God, in verse 15, is the blessed and only sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. Where have we heard that phrase as well? For those of you who know your Bible, if you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, it says this, These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The Lamb is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, turning over again to chapter 19, verse 16 of the book of Revelation. And it says, He has this name 
written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you were to read back in the chapter, it's talking about the Word of God. So Paul talks about God in a sentence which seems to kind of distinguish God from Jesus. He talks about God being the only King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You get to the book of Revelation, the Lamb and the Word of God, who we can quite clearly see and identify as Jesus, is also called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So when we put those things together, we can see both attention and a way of resolving the problem that God and Jesus were both worthy of the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But when we go back to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Now when you read that superficially, it seems to almost be reinforcing the point that Jesus is just a man. But what Paul is actually trying to do is to, by talking about Jesus' distinction from God and talking about him as a man here, he's identifying the, the man, the human part of Jesus, because of its role in salvation. So for Jesus to be saviour of humanity, he had to be fully human. If Jesus wasn't fully human, then the fullness of your humanity couldn't be atoned for on the cross. So Jesus was required to be fully human. So what Paul is doing here, and when you read through 1 Timothy, and I hope many of you have started to do so, and if not, you will do so after tonight, and when you read some of these sentences through and get confused, what Paul is doing, he's emphasising the role of saviour in the humanity of Jesus. So he, when he's talking about Jesus as a man, he's emphasising that it was his human part that was responsible for the atonement, for making sure that you were forgiven for your sins, for dying on the cross, so that your humanness could be redeemed. So for Paul, he wasn't trying to say that Jesus is not God. He's just trying to emphasise in Jesus that he had a role to play in joining God and humanity together in himself, and in his humanness, that's what was enabling you to get close to God, because that's what died on the cross. So Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and Paul also says that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's because Jesus is fully God too. But what Paul is getting at here, and why when you read this through, some people start to stumble over it, and they're thinking, what is Paul saying? Is he saying that Jesus is in some way inferior to God? Why does he separate him out in the language? <coughs> he's not saying he's in any way deficient in his godness or divinity. He's simply arguing that there was also humanity fully in Christ too, and it was that humanity, the man Christ Jesus, which was the bridge between God the Father and you and me. So when you read through this and you read through the language, don't feel in any way that Paul is denigrating, he's reducing the, the authority and the supremacy of Jesus. All he's doing is emphasising his humanness. Okay, the final thing is in, for today is in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. So it's in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. It's also in 1 Timothy, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. 
Paul says to Timothy, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, Paul says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, and by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. So Paul in 2 Timothy says, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that came through the laying on of his hands, and also to remind himself in 1 Timothy about the prophecies that were spoken over him. The final thing I would offer to us this evening as something for that's both instructive and practical is that we need to be people who store the word of God up in our hearts. Both the things that have been spoken over us that are positive, that are from God, not everything spoken over you is from God. Certainly growing up in school, I think most of us have had a situation where something's been spoken over us that is evidently not from God. But we need to store up in our hearts the things that God says about us. Paul was reminding Timothy there that he himself had laid hands on Timothy and seen something imparted to him. And there were prophecies probably at that same event that he was referring to that had been spoken over Timothy. And Paul knew if Timothy was going to finish the race and fight the good fight and do everything that God had in store for him, he wasn't, wasn't going to be able to do it without a fight and a conflict. And the only way he was going to be able to stay the course and finish the race is if he stored up in his heart and in his mind the things that God said about him. This is why we need a really rich and thorough understanding of Scripture. Because in here are lots of stories about people from thousands of years ago. But when we distill those stories and we look at those stories and apply those stories, we can see promises for our own lives that we can hang on to in dark places. Jeremiah 29, 11, The plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for hope and a future. So many of us have need to hold on to words like that in our lives. This was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel, but it's still true for us today because it's based in the very nature of God and his intent for his people. So while that was said thousands of years ago to a people that we probably don't really identify with in many ways, it is still applicable for us because God doesn't love you any less than he loved the people of Israel. And if he had good plans for them, he's got good plans for you. And so we need to hold on to the teaching of God. We need to hold on to the word of God because those are the things that are going to get you through tough times. Timothy seemed to be going through a little bit of a time where he was up against it and maybe his mental health had taken a knock. I think, in fact, actually, my understanding of the context of 2 Timothy is I think he's actually gone back to Lystra where he was from. At the end of 2 Timothy, talk, Paul talks about how he'd sent somebody to Ephesus. So if Timothy was still in Ephesus, it's a bit of a redundant statement, because he would know because he was there. So where was he? I think he was probably back at home in Lystra, which is why as well in 2 Timothy, Paul says, remind yourself of the, of the faith that you got from your mum and your grandma, because they would have been there with him in Lystra, where he was from. Paul was saying, look at them again. Look at the fact that they're still plodding on with the word of God that's been spoken to them. You need that same grit and that same determination and that same tenacity in you. 
And for us to be like Timothy, it's not to say that we have it all together. It's to say that when we don't feel like we have it all together, we still trust in a God who knows the end from the beginning, who has said good things over our lives, has promises that he will bring to pass. And whether you're down or whether you're up, God is still sovereign and in control. Paul is still saying he's still the king of kings and saying he's still the Lord of lords. And even when you don't feel like he's reigning and ruling in your life, trust that he is still overseeing the whole path and trajectory of humanity and he can bring the things spoken over you to pass so this is why we need a rich understanding of the word of God because there will be things that happen to us that would seek to bring into doubt the things that God wants for us and unless we are really confident in holding on to this thing we'll begin to trust our circumstances rather than the word of God and I believe Paul is saying to Timothy if you're going to do this job that I've given you, if you're going to be that second generation of leader, if you're going to be that guy that carries the baton when I go to heaven, if you're going to be the guy that oversees Ephesus and the other churches that are going to need your pastoral care, you are not going to be able to do that role without a fight. And if you want to get through the fight, you're going to need to hang on to something that will never change when everything's changing around you. And what will never change is what God has spoken over your life. Because when he said it, he knew what was coming. And if he knew what was coming, he knew it would be true when he said it over you because he knew it with the future in mind. So in closing, Timothy is a guy who knew weakness. He knew vulnerability. He knew what it was like to feel up against it. He was going into a situation where he would have felt really out of his depth in many ways. He was probably this young guy. We don't know what happened to his dad. Paul certainly doesn't refer to his dad as being an inspiration of faith for his life. He doesn't say, remember the faith was in your mom, your grandma, and in your dad. His dad's absent. Maybe his dad wasn't much good. Paul was like a father to him. But he wanted to make sure that the things that he told Timothy in that last season of, his, of Paul's life were the things that were going to get Timothy through the rest of his life. And he wanted to emphasize the fact that when God has said something to you, when God has put something in your heart, when God has spoken something over your life, he intends to bring it to pass. Those prophetic words that were spoken. But we don't have just prophetic words, we have the written word. That this is spoken over you and me too. There is stuff in here that is a promise for our lives that we also need in our spirits. And if we don't read it, and if we don't meditate on it, and if we don't take it in and we just kind of see it as something that we need to do a few times, reading the Bible to tick a box in the week, we miss the power of it. Because this isn't given for information, it's for transformation. It's for staying the course. It's for staying on track and it's making sure that we complete the task that God has given to us and inside that are so many promises that will do us good. Okay, let's pray. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com